It is uh, the 23rd of October. We have Brent crude oil uh, opening in Asia this morning, a little bit down uh, the, 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 at the number of uh, 90, what is it, 9136. So uh, having sort of challenged above 93 in the aftermath of these last two weeks of crisis in the Middle East, uh, the geopolitical risk premium uh, has kind of uh, leveled off, if not declining. Uh, let's kick off this morning, as always, on Monday with uh, Omar Najia, the global head of derivatives at BB Energy. Omar, what's your read on the market as it stands? Are we back to sort of focusing on the fundamentals or is there still a geopolitical risk factor here that could drive the front month up? So anybody who basically wants to trade oil by looking at fundamentals is going to basically be on his own and probably lose a massive amount of money. Markets are interconnected. That's one. Markets, oil markets also, we, you know, take a big input from geopolitics. So if you want to basically lose money, the way to do it is just go with fundamentals and add, you know, one plus one equal. The fundamentals don't change. They don't change over a long period of time. So trading them is basically, you know, you want a hiding to, to nowhere, basically. So no, I don't think fundamentals are going to be basically traded because I've never actually seen them uh, being traded. I've seen them being talked about. Uh, I've seen basically articles saying, you know, China's going to do this. And, and demand is going to do this and all the rest of it, usually by banks. And they talk about a year's, you know, overview. And then they adjust their numbers, you know, pretty much every single quarter because markets just don't, at least the oil market doesn't trade like that. So you've got to view it basically in relation to other markets. And you've got to view it in relation also to uh, geopolitics, which is why so many people get it wrong. Clyde Russell, Asia Commodities and Energy columnist at Thomson Reuters, uh, one of those who writes some very insightful articles every week and posted one this morning, uh, again, always reminding us of the role of China, uh, China demand in this market. Headline on Clyde's article today, China draws on crude oil stockpiles while boosting refining. I suppose it's an indication of, of how comfortable the Chinese profile is at the moment after massive imports through the third quarter. Uh, they have lots of inventories to call upon. What's your read on the demand picture in China at the moment? Well, I think it's, it's, it's quite interesting because you've got to really talk about the two sort of separate things that are happening in China at the moment is we are actually seeing their imports starting to tail off. And that's not really a, a surprise. Anybody who follows China will, will, will see that this is a pattern when crude oil prices rise. Once you get the lag of three, four months between, you know, uh, when cargoes are ordered and actually delivered, you start to see their imports taper. This doesn't mean they're going to nothing, but it does mean that they can drop off a million, a million and a half barrels a day. And we've seen that in September. We're likely to see that again in October. But what's interesting this time around is that they're still running their refineries pretty hard. When we had record processing in September, we're expecting a good outcome in, in October. And so basically what they're doing is they're drawing on their stockpiles that they've built up, not just this year, but over the previous years as well. And, you know, they're sort of saying, well, crude is expensive. Products are expensive, therefore we're going to use up some of the cheaply bought crude earlier this year, and we're going to sell expensive products. This and we've seen this pattern before. They have done this before, but I think you know um, a, a lot of people who write about the oil markets sort of say, well, you know, Chinese demand is still this. 
but they're meeting some of that demand from stockpiles rather than from imports. And I think that's the sort of key thing for the market to have a look at. Let's go to uh, uh, to Venezuela, where, of course, we have uh, our, our regular commentator uh, there. And obviously, a lot has been happening in uh, Venezuela in the last week. Jose Shalhoub, LATAM consultant at Azure Global Consulting and Vetergy Global. Jose, some big developments in uh, Venezuela with the U.S. essentially lifting all sanctions, curtailing the export of Venezuelan crude, at least for six months. Your read on this decision, how significant is it for Venezuela's oil industry? Yeah, thank you, Sean. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, maybe like two or three years ago, I was kind of more pessimistic about, you know, kind of when, how Venezuela could recover its, uh, its lost oil production uh, after years of mismanagement and corruption and destruction of its oil production. But right now, the context is different uh, for Venezuela is very positive. Uh, this uh, recent surprising decision by the U.S., considering the global context, uh, the rise in geopolitical risks in the Middle East, and uh, of course, the ongoing Russia-Ukraine war, uh, you have uh, still sanctions against the Russian crude oil experts. You have uh, the no game uh, with, with Iran and no chance of any nuclear deal between Washington and Iran. So this is why Washington, I mean, I, I kind of expected this move, but not that massive. Uh, like, you know, basically the U.S. Uh, with these new licenses now is allowing at least for six months because, I mean, it's not that long time. But it's a first step, uh, allowing for new investments uh, for different U.S. and European oil companies. No sanctions, not at all. Also to trade Venezuelan bonds and PDVSA bonds uh, to reinsert Venezuelan, uh, you know, banking systems uh, into the international SWIFT systems as well. So this time is could could be different, but also will depend much. On the political dynamics as well, we had we had uh, the opposition elections uh, yesterday, um, which uh, remains a challenge for the government after the agreement reached in Barbados between the uh, the government and the opposition, mediated by Washington. So this time could be different. Of course, the the amount of barrels of extra barrels could be limited between uh, different estimates between 150 to 200 thousand barrels per day in the, in the next uh, six months is that a um a, a just to follow up on that is is there an incentive to invest in production capacity or is this just simply an opportunity to sell more what you from what you can already get out of the ground that the six months nobody's going to be putting dollars in expanding capacity yeah, exactly. I mean, for me, I mean, eh, six months is not that long time. Basically, it could be an opportunity to, um, you know, to trade more oil, to export the oil that it's in inventories as well. Um, but yeah, but that, I mean, the decision is there, the license is there to uh, allow for new investments. Uh, recently, we saw news uh, also that Chef, the Schlumberger is returning quickly to Venezuela to restart operations. We had news about on Trafigura, the one of the largest oil trading company, also seeking tankers to to, to trade Venezuelan oil. So yeah, I mean, uh, uh, basically it could be an opportunity to um, 
export more oil uh, at least uh, during the, the the next months. Omar, we have a report out on Bloomberg over the weekend that uh, basically saying the uh, traders are flocking back to buy bullish options. The number of call options traded has outpaced the volume of bearish puts every day for a month, according to ICE Futures. Uh, uh, your thoughts on on what that means as as the sort of long position builds up? Well, again, I mean, you know, you have to, you know, you have to look at this market again, broadly speaking, right? So since Biden came in in 2021, the U.S. deficit has increased by six trillion dollars. That's in two years, right? Six trillion. So, trillion with a T. Since T. 2021, since Biden came in, right? We're now at like 33.5, 33.7 trillion in debt, right? Six trillion of it in the last two years. Some people would have you believe that that is basically deflationary. I don't think it's deflationary. I think it's inflationary. If you want to look at the price of oil before you start saying it's really cheap, it's really expensive, you have to look at it in adjusted levels. If you look at it adjusted levels for inflation, it is incredibly cheap. It is not just cheap. It's, it's sitting on a branch and chirping away. It's so cheap. Okay, first. Second of all, if you look at the geopolitical situation, not to mention anything to do with winter, which is, you know, a traditional time of year where basically things get really cold, then risk is not to the downside. Risk is to the upside. Whatever happens in the world, whatever happens in basically any place on Earth, you have winter and you have basically an inflationary environment. So if you look at all the numbers coming out, be it in Europe, in the UK, in the US, you get presented with ideas like inflation surprises to the upside. And then I'd have you consider something else. Every single time you have geopolitical chaos or economic chaos, what happens traditionally? The US dollar gets bid and people buy U.S. Treasuries, because it's the safest investment. What's happening now? The U.S. dollar is being sold, and U.S. Treasuries are cratering. And yet people still say, deflationary world. What does a 5% yield, do you think, mean for that outlook uh, with the uh, on the bond markets? So it means basically that everybody and his friend along the 10-year, they basically bought it because they thought that basically um, um, uh, what would happen to the price, interest rates would drop because they would start cutting and the price would go up and they'd make money. But interest rates haven't been cut. They're, gonna, they're very likely to go higher. Higher not, I mean, higher, I think, for inflation, but higher because they want to try and get people to hold U.S. Treasuries, which they're not doing. So first, I think you're going to see lots of funds come out of the 10-year, which is going to drive the price of the 10-year even lower, which is going to increase, basically, yields even higher for anybody who wants to come in and buy. And I think that that is going to go to like something like 7%. Wow. So I, I, and then people say to you that if interest rates go up, that's bad for oil. It's not bad for oil. You can see it. 
the other thing that they say is if the stock market goes down, that means oil, oil is coming down. It's not coming down. So what happens basically if the oil price of oil skyrockets, then you get, because everybody's talking about a soft landing and the US is everything is so good and so strong and all this kind of stuff. And then you get a massive black swan where everybody basically starts to panic and oh my God, and who could have known and who could have saw and all this kind of stuff. So I'm bullish oil. I'm bullish commodities. I'm bearish Don't the US dollar. panic. Don't yeah, exactly, exactly. Clyde exactly. Russell, uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on, uh, from your perspective, obviously the beauty of this podcast is we go around the world every week and get perspectives from far away from the Middle East to looking at the Middle East. Um, and I wanted to get the sense China is sending their Middle East envoy to the region this week to try and have some influence on a peace, ceasefire, or whatever way of calming this crisis down. And what I'm trying to understand is how incentivized they are. How much muscle is China willing to use on this problem? We have the Australian prime minister also going to China this week. You guys seem to be getting chummy again. From an Asian perspective, from a Chinese perspective, how big a crisis, how big a risk does this crisis in the Middle East present to, to Asia? Of course, China is most dependent on energy supplies coming from the Middle East. Does this feel like a big issue that China will want to use muscle to solve? Well, the Chinese traditionally don't really talk too loudly, certainly in a public space, you know, when they're when they're trying to do things. Their interest in this is, quite frankly, they don't really care about what happens to the Palestinians. They don't care about what happens to the Israelis. They care about getting as much oil at as cheap as possible price as they can from the Middle East. So everything they, they do will be towards that end. So if they are going to go talk to the Iranians, it will be, don't escalate this to the point where there's a threat to shipping through the Straits of Hormuz. That's what their message will be. We'll be very unhappy about that. Um, you know, I guess from other uh, Asian countries, India will be giving exactly the same message as well. We don't want to see this escalate. Uh, you know, so they're going to be, the message is going to be try to contain it. Not because they are really concerned about, you know, humanitarian crisis in Gaza. They're, they're, they're concerned about getting oil. Um, so I think that's the kind of thing that they'll be looking to do. Certainly, you know, China, you see a subtle shift in, in how it's been interacting with much of the rest of the world. Not everybody. They're still fighting with the Filipinos over little pieces of rock in the South China Sea. But you're starting to see a subtle shift and they're getting a little more a little less of the wolf warrior thing that they had going and a little more uh, cooperative and, um, you know, sort of trying to fit into the international order. Yes, they're still very friendly with the Russians. Yes, they're still friendly with a lot of people the West find uh, unpalatable. But, you know, um, the, but unlike you can see... The Russians, unlike the Russians, perhaps, uh, they're not as incentivized to see this escalate, you know, where oil prices would go higher, where a security of supply could come into risk, Russia and China may sort of diverge on those issues. Well, I think the Russians just want to maximize the amount of money they're getting for their oil. So they're quite happy to see a little bit of a risk premium come back into that market. Whether, you know, whether it gets to the point where you actually have a genuine crisis, that becomes a, a much more difficult thing. I mean, if you go back a couple of years when the Houthis were at presumably the bidding of the Iranians shooting missiles at Saudi oil facilities and things like that, I think if you get back to that level of tension in the Middle East, that really is not going to serve the interests of, of, of the Chinese. And they're going to make that known. 
Um, but what they maybe that's one of the reasons. Happen. You know, coming back to our earlier point, maybe that's one of the reasons why uh, China has been building up its inventories for so long that they were smelling a you know potential Middle East crisis, and now they've got pretty significant inventories to ride out any not any disruption, but certainly some. Oh yes, they, they, I mean I think the, I mean traditionally what the Chinese do is when they deem oil to be cheap on a relative basis they buy it. So you know when COVID hit in 2020, what did the Chinese do? They they went massively long buying huge volumes of oil that took months and months and months to be delivered. Um, you saw earlier this year, you know they were buying quite heavily, but that's but that was before the price started to rise. So we've seen the price rise from July onwards. They've trimmed back. So yes, I think they can use some of the some of their inventories, but you've got to also remember that when I talk about them trimming imports, we're really talking about trimming from um, sort of a maximum of 12, 12 and a half million barrels a day down to a minimum of 10, 10 and a half million barrels a day. Yes, so 2 million barrels is significant, that matters in the oil market, but the Chinese are still going to be buying no matter what, 10 to 11 million barrels every month. And they'll be interested in making sure that that price doesn't go to what they would deem an unreasonable level. And at the moment, that would be anything north of $100. Jose, looking at Venezuela, and obviously it could be a significant game changer if this rolls beyond six months. And so the question then is, well, how how are the politics of this decision? How likely are the actors within the Venezuelan body politic uh, likely to do what's necessary to to keep the Americans happy and and for to to do what they said they would do in terms of the recent agreement. Yeah, well, that's 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 an interesting question, and uh, well, uh, you don't see many people here, you know, optimistic about this agreement and about U.S. easing sanctions. I'm. I'm, as I said, I'm opt optimistic, but uh, of course, this will much depend on how the Venezuelan government, at least until uh, next year, presidential elections, ha will handle all this. Uh, Venezuela needs money. Venezuela needs a fresh inflow of of, of money from oil experts, uh, and it knows it can it can get that it, you know it can get that money, but um, the real challenge will be how the government will negotiate uh, uh and especially after you know yesterday uh, elections of the opposition uh where the this uh, lady called Maria Machado who astonishing you know won this election where she represents the real challenge for the government and she has uh, the support of the United States okay so uh, the real challenge does that mean she has a has a chance i mean if maduro was to facilitate a free and fair election surely oh. he would probably win yeah absolutely absolutely and that's the real challenge you know for the maduro government but uh, uh maduro you know has to do the things right because if after 6 months uh maybe the you know caracas uh, puts many obstacles uh, for Machado to win or to hold free and, uh, and fair elections, you can forget about the sanctions lifting you know, or the renewal of these licenses. And of yeah. course, the, there's this other thing, how Caracas will handle all this after uh, you had the vice president of Venezuela meeting in Moscow, where in, in the bilateral commission of both governments signing different agreements with Russia and, and, and especially in oil. 
So, and also with Iran and China, you, I mean, how Caracas will assess all this uh, in terms of geopolitical risks? I mean, how do they navigate the debt that they have to Russia and China, which I believe is over 100 billion? Is that correct? Or is that an exaggeration? No, it's around 100 billion dollars. So wow. it's it's critical. It's critical. Uh, and it will be interesting how after this decision, how, for example, Moscow or Beijing maybe we'll react or maybe we'll try to decide or or try to handle these debts because these are all debts. Uh, but let's see, that because it's, it, it'll be real, really interesting. Yeah, that sounds like you want some debt right off there. But, you know, what yeah. are you going to give? What are you going to give in order to get that? This is a, uh, a hard uh, circle to square. Let's go to the survey question. Uh, on this point of the Chinese Middle East envoy Zai Yun will arrive in the Middle East this week to push for peace talks and ceasefire. How much influence does China have on resolving the crisis? Not much curtailed. They can certainly, as uh, Clyde indicated, they do have influence over some of the actors in curtailing the war spreading. Uh, Iran, we saw that uh, the Chinese were uh, the curator of the Saudi-Iran deal earlier this year. So they certainly have influence of curtailing the war spreading, may not solving it uh, at the ground in Palestine, but they certainly could curtail it. Uh, how much influence does China have on resolving the crisis? Significant uh, uh, would be the third option in the answers here. So your uh, your sort of vote on that, what do you think is the... Uh, is the answer here? How much influence does China have on resolving the the, the crisis? And, and uh, I suppose one could have asked, which I was thinking of asking, how much are they willing to use? How much muscle are they willing to deploy? Uh, but that's like saying, how long is a piece of string? So uh, hard to answer that. Omar and Najia, we we go into um, the sort of last week of the trading month, the crisis. In Palestine, obviously front and center, horrific in every way one wants to look at it. Uh, does the the sort of crass oil market dynamics? Should we start to as absorb it as a kind of a a new reality? Uh, yes, a, a very tragic one, and and but yet ultimately of not any great consequence for the oil markets. Your thoughts on that? Um, I think, no, no, I think basically, look, you, you I think sometimes, you know, people are uh, in danger of, of thinking too small. Uh, so they, they don't add things up, right? So let's, let's take, um, let's take like uh, the interests of various parties, right? So I don't think China wants uh, low oil prices because, I mean, you know, over anything, I think, I think they're thinking much bigger. I think China and Russia and, and Brazil and the BRICS in general are not thinking about no oil prices. They're thinking about the entire globe. They're thinking about taking everything over, right? And I think that's definitely a project that they have in mind. That's why the BRICS was created. That's why they had 140 countries join uh, the Belt and Road Initiative that happened, I think, over this weekend or last week sometime. And um, so I, I don't think that they're, they're particularly worried about, you know, um, if oil prices go up this week or down or, or, or any of that stuff. That's, that's the first point. The second point is geopolitically, the region here, I mean, you saw Biden go to Israel and what happened? 
the temperature went up. It became actually worse. So no summit, no whatever. They had a vote at the UN. 14 countries voted for the ceasefire um, uh, proposal that was put forward by China and Russia. Only one country voted against it. That was the USA, right? So, and there will be. No, I mean, I think basically the, 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 the geopolitical stuff now is going to be extremely interesting because you have two wars, one in Ukraine, one in, in, in Palestine, <laughs> and you have the West looking at them and talking about them in two completely contradictory ways, completely. So, I mean, that, and I think that hasn't gone unnoticed by, by the rest of the world, by the global South, by the global majority. And I think the US and Europe are thinking as if this was or we are in like the 90s. So they, they seem to think that everything is handled, everything will be okay. We're going to have like some kind of, you know, peace, everything's going to be fine, don't worry, blah, blah, blah. I tend to think the opposite, both in Ukraine and in Palestine. I think basically, uh, you know, they, 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 they're not thinking, they're not taking into account the way that the world has changed. So I think the risk to all parties, I mean, you saw the Houthis, Hezbollah is definitely going to join a war in the north. Israel cannot do anything but go into Gaza, which is going to lead to, you know, uh, a complete conflagration of the thing. The U.S. has no idea what to do. None, absolutely zero. The Europeans following the, the U.S., again, no idea. And you have China and Russia who are basically coming more and more to the, to the forefront. And I think it's going to be extremely interesting to watch. So no, I, I, I disagree. I think history is a really bad guide to what's happening now. Again, Go back to the US dollar, go back to treasuries, go back to the kind of, you know, tone deaf approach to two different conflicts, saying this is good, this is bad, and, and not being able to understand that it's exactly the same. And, and trying to portray, I mean, it's, it's quite fascinating. So I think that leads to some kind of delusion that, you know, everything's going to be fine, price is going to be fine, the economy is going to be fine you know, all that kind of stuff. So no, I think basically risk is very much to the upside. Clyde, I wanted to get your thoughts on the uh, story we're carrying in our new digest today, which is about OPEC's share of Indian oil imports uh, hitting near record lows as the you know sort of discounted Russian oil is the preferred option there. The oil price cap seems to have either collapsed or faded away or become irrelevant. What's your thoughts on, on, on its role into Asia at the moment and those countries that are trying to comply versus those that are not? Well, I think the people who actually trade oil will tell you the oil price cap was always a, a, a figment of the U.S. imagination rather than any reality. I think you you while oil was below the price of cap, that was no problem at all. As soon as oil went above the price cap, you know, everybody just sort of said, well, we'll just kind of ignore that. And let's be honest, we've now got a whole bunch of what I could perhaps describe as more fly-by-night operators in the oil market. Um, and a lot of the trading has been done by, by new entities, shall we say. 
Um, so I, I think it's, you know, the Indians, as long as they're still getting a discount on Russian crude, even if that discount is narrowing from the $10, $15 a barrel it was, you know, a few months back to like closer to $3, $4 a barrel now, I think they're going to keep taking it because, you know, discounted crude is still better than full price crude. So I think that's kind of how, how it's going to go. Um, does that put any pressure on the, you know, the India's more traditional suppliers? Uh, probably not. They're they're still able to sell the rest of the oil, um, you know, and and to other clients. So I th I think everybody, you know, it's just a, a shuffling of how barrels move around the world. But yeah, it's it it will continue. The price cap is dead. Jose Shalhoub, last word to you. Does uh, Venezuela and there's the the survey result. We'll post that on social media. China can influence the curtailing of the spread of the war if they are so incentivized to do so. They certainly have a lot of muscle on a, 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 that they could carry on a lot of actors. Um, Jose, does uh, uh, Venezuela have much inventory that this window of opportunity, like we saw in Iran, although the sanctions never got lifted in Iran, but they had a lot of inventory that they were able to move quickly to the market, does uh, Venezuela have uh, such? Well, not not like those of Iran, but definitely Venezuela used. I mean, in the last in the last months, and due to these uh, and these sanctions, uh, yeah, that was definitely a problem for Venezuela. The existence, uh, you know, inventories and in, in tanks and all that, which is, uh, I believe, uh, the first thing that they're gonna they're gonna try to export, especially. Um, when we talk about products such as pet coke for example pet coke was uh, and it still is one of our one of you know pervisa's main export you know products of exports especially to india or china uh, but definitely yes definitely we have uh, we still have even, uh, enough inventories uh, and that's going to be the the first thing to export and in that regard, I mean, obviously, the majority of, of crude oil exports from Venezuela always went to the U.S. refiners on the Gulf Coast. Will Venezuela find a home for that now again easily? Well, Chevron has been doing that after after it, it restarted operations. And that's I mean, as I always say that, that the U.S. has always been our traditional natural market for our crude oil allocations. Let's see if, for example, we see uh, companies like, like you know, Exxon or maybe Conoco after they settle the, you know, their claims against PDVSA or maybe other Euro European companies. Uh, but definitely new investments are needed. New investments are needed is the opportunity there. Six months rolling into 12 and on. Let's see. Brent crude oil trading this morning at 91.28, down 1% at the beginning of the week. Let's see where it goes from here. The developments in the Middle East, very, very likely to affect the direction of travel, as Omar Najia points out. Thank you, Omar, as always. From Dubai, Clyde Russell in Australia and Jose Shaloub in Venezuela. This early morning, we thank you for your time and your comments and insights. Take care. We'll catch up every morning, 1030 UAE time. All the best.